Hello, and welcome to Profiles. I'm Owen Johnson. Today, we profile not a person, but an institution, the European Union. This is one of four profiles that will be devoted to the EU. Our guest is Professor Beata Sisinich, a faculty member in the Political Science Department at Indiana University. Beata received her Ph.D. at Cornell and taught a year at Rutgers University before coming to Indiana University in 2003. She is particularly interested in how rules and knowledge travel across borders and why they often fail to do so, even when evidence would suggest best practices worthy of pursuing. Her courses cover public policy and comparative politics of advanced industrialized countries, particularly Europe. She also teaches social movements, transnational activism, and reproductive health. Beata's first book, Building States Without Society, deals with the transfer of European Union social policy to Poland and Hungary and documents the limits of EU influence on new member states and the simultaneous marginalization of societal actors in Europe's newest democracies. Her current project is The Politics of Childbirth, which helps explain why she is also a member of the affiliate faculty of the Department of Gender Studies. Beata, welcome to Profiles. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. On March 25, 1957, leaders from six West European countries met in Rome to sign a treaty to establish a European economic community, better known as the common market. But the roots go back further. Where do they come from exactly? They come from the experience of two world wars, devastating wars uh, that originated in Germany and that left the continent largely in ruins. And so after World War II... The question was what to do about Germany, essentially, what to do about West Germany, since uh, the Soviet Union had made the decision for uh, East Germany. And so one early plan uh, for Germany involved basically turning it into a potato field, uh, a potato and cabbage field, that is, to deindustrialize it. And that was rejected as unfeasible, as counterproductive, and as ultimately actually damaging countries surrounding Germany. So there was already early on the recognition that uh, the rebuilding of all of Western Europe uh, required a strong Western Germany. And so the approach was to integrate uh, Western Europe. Um, Originally, the idea was to build a political union, uh, but that met with a lot of resistance Uh, because countries uh, were very hesitant to give away any of their national sovereignty. So instead, the plan became to focus on economic integration, starting with a relatively narrow set of sectors, coal and steel, in the early 1950s, that were nevertheless very critical both to civilian and to military production. So the European Coal and Steel Pact uh, in the early 1950s supranationalized governance of these sectors. The calculation was basically that European voters wouldn't much pay attention to what was going on there because these were highly technical sectors and integration could proceed gradually by starting out in these central uh, sectors and then fanning out to adjacent economic uh, concerns. And Uh, Out of that came the Treaties of Rome that you invoked uh, in 1957, and that's what started the common market. Great Britain was very ambivalent about this process. Why? Partly because the French were (laughs) ambivalent about the British. Uh, Partly because Britain, I think, has always seen itself much closer to the United States and so didn't want any affiliation with 
continental Europe to stand in, a, in the way of its relationship with the United States. And I think we see that even today in the way uh, the British uh, conduct their relations with the EU. Um, we certainly saw that in the context of the Iraq war, but we can also see that in the way that the British choose to opt out of certain fairly central common policies of the EU, such as the common currency. What did change in 1973 when um, the UK, Ireland, and Denmark joined the common market? De Gaulle was no longer in the picture. <laughs> so the French president uh, was uh, no longer in the picture and thus uh, no longer able to uh, put up resistance to uh, British accession to the EU. So it was only partly British hesitancy, but also uh, very strongly French resistance to British membership uh, as a, another strong player in the EU that might displace some of France's authority in the Union. The collapse of the Iron Curtain in 1989 obviously opened what we used to call Eastern Europe to possible membership. What happened then? What happened then was that even prior to 1989, some Eastern European countries had already toyed with the possibility of joining the EU in some fashion. So this was the time when uh, Western European countries were really gearing up for the completion of the common market, which they had scheduled for 1992-1993. Uh, that didn't quite pan out. The market is still not complete. There are lots of obstacles. But uh, Hungary, for instance, even prior to 1989, uh, attempted to force its parliament to streamline its laws with common market laws. So it was clear that countries regarded the European Union or then the European community as an important uh, trade partner. Uh, and there was, in fact, a fair amount of trade integration between certain uh, Eastern European countries, Hungary one, being one of them. They also came to look at joining the EU as a way of rejoining Europe. If we look at the Cold War as uh, a long split between Europe uh, in East and West, uh, for them, it was a way to reassert their identity as part of the European Enlightenment democratic free market tradition. And so that became very important. What was frustrating for them was that after Western European uh, states paid lip service to this notion of an overarching uh, European ideal, uh, they were a lot more hesitant to actually uh, let these countries in. And so you could see that in the uh, trade relations that evolved prior to uh, actual accession in 2004 and 2007, where the EU essentially engaged in a very protectionist regime. That is, uh, Central and Eastern European countries uh, had trade restrictions on their uh, manufactured goods, uh, whereas they heavily imported uh, EU products. Um, so actually, if you look at the trade relations as they evolved, the Eastern European countries are much more uh, import um, dependent on Western Europe than the other way around. So this has really benefited Western European countries a lot. Uh, and you don't always hear that uh, when public leaders talk about it. The, the talk was much more about uh, fears of a large wave of immigrants flooding. Uh, the plumbers from Poland. Yes, exactly. The Polish plumber. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, or the mathematician from Bratislava working at lower wages in Vienna uh, as a cross-border commuter. So that never panned out, partly because the Western European countries imposed uh, strong restrictions on labor migration. Is the EU ever likely to expand again? Well, there's Turkey, uh, which has been waiting for a long time and which 
the U.S. would like to see um, joining uh, the EU sooner rather than later, since it's been uh, a legitimate mem member of NATO for a long time. So uh, from the U.S. perspective, the question has been for a long time, if it's good enough for NATO, why not good enough for the EU? Uh, there are a few other countries that also have candidate status, uh, Macedonia, Croatia, and Iceland. Uh, Croatia and Iceland seem to be relatively non-controversial, whereas Macedonia uh, has met with a lot of Greek resistance uh, to its accession. Uh, so the, the Greeks um, look to Macedonia as a potential foreign policy risk. And Turkey is the biggest uh, issue the biggest controversy. And it's very hard to determine exactly what the controversy is over because so many different factors seem to come together there. It's one of the most populous uh, countries uh, or will be uh, once the uh, country would join the EU. So it has around 65 million people, 60, 65 million people. Uh, and it has a very high birth rate compared to pretty much every other <laughs> country in Europe. And so uh, it is clear that sooner or later it would displace Germany as the biggest country. It is a very poor country. And given the uh, system of structural aid that comes from Brussels. It's not very big, but there is some redistribution going on within the EU. Uh, the fear is that Turkey would pretty much absorb all of the money coming out of Brussels. Uh, and then uh, on top of these economic and demographic considerations, there are considerations about cultural compatibility, shall we say, about, uh, I think that's a polite way of saying that um, Europeans sometimes tend to regard the EU as uh, a Christian union. And uh, there are other concerns with respect to Turkey's commitment to human rights, respect for human rights, especially of the Kurdish minority, the Armenian uh, minority. The fact that uh, there is still a law that makes it illegal uh, for Turkish media, for instance, or Turkish authors to discuss the Armenian genocide. And so there are a lot of factors that uh, compound uh, into a resistance on the part of most European countries to actually see Turkey become a full member. The EU presently has 27 members. The euro as a currency is used by 17 members. What's the connection? What's the connection? There are several. I already mentioned that the UK voluntarily uh, chose to stay out and secured this right in one of the treaties of uh, European integration, the Maastricht Treaty of 1993. Other member states, such as Denmark and Sweden, also have chosen thus far to stay out, but are actually obliged at some point to join, though nobody right now is pushing them anywhere near joining the, uh, the common currency. The New member states of uh, Eastern Europe uh, are obligated to join by a treaty uh, agreement when they are ready. And, of course, defining when they are ready is up to a lot of different variables. Uh, Estonia is the most recent Eastern European country that joined this year. Slovenia and Slovakia are already part of the common currency. But there are good reasons for some of these member states to retain as much macroeconomic flexibility as possible. I, I think I read that there had been some re recent controversy um, in decision-making about the euro, that there, the, the 17 countries would form a kind of inner circle mm -hmm. and make some of the decisions for the larger EU, and some of those outside the euro are objecting. Is that a long-term significant problem? I think it's, I mean, again, coming from the perspective of, say, Germany or France, uh, it seems like a very tempting <laughs> 
interesting way of organizing things, but it very much undercuts the idea of European integration, where very small states and very large states uh, all have veto power over certain very fundamental decisions. Now, exactly how that veto power is allocated and how it has receded in favor of uh, various forms of qualified majority voting that required uh, upward of 70% uh, of the vote in the uh, Council of Ministers going down to um, a little more than 60%. Um, so that is changing. But nevertheless, one of the fundamental ideas of European integration has always been that the smaller member states actually would retain their voice. And so, yes, absolutely, the idea of uh, having the um, big players uh, set the policies for the smaller players, uh, while it may seem tempting from an economic point of view, uh, is politically probably counterproductive in the long run. Let's pause here and listen to some music related to Europe. And I think perhaps the w thing to start with is a variation on the European anthem. Can you talk about this a bit? Yeah. So the European anthem uh, is the uh, tune that most people are familiar with from uh, Beethoven's uh, Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy. Um, it has lyrics uh, that uh, were written by Friedrich Schiller, but are not usually actually played. So nobody sings the European anthem like they sing their national anthem. And it is claimed both by the Council of Europe, which is a relatively large organization uh, with, I think, 47 member states right now. It's relatively easy to get in. Russia is a member, so you don't have to be a functioning democracy in order to qualify. And it's also claimed by the European Union. So the European Union always struggles very hard to uh, broadcast the image of there actually being shared values, a shared identity, a shared community. And one of the ways it does so is by um, playing that uh, melody. The Council of Europe has a similar image problem, uh, maybe less so. And so it has held contests where musicians could make contributions uh, do variations of uh, the anthem in various styles. And so the uh, variation that we chose here is a Roma uh, version. So um, as a lot of people know, the Roma are a people, a minority in uh, a lot of European countries that have a very strong tradition of musical production. And so uh, there are uh, interesting uh, variations. And that's the one I think would be really fun to listen to. That was a Roma version of the European National Anthem, music we're listening to as we discuss the European Union with Beata Sisinich. 
a political scientist from Indiana University. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Beata, what's the best way to view the EU as a U.S. of Europe, a superstate, or some other model? How can we best understand it? I think these attempts at comparing the EU to something that we're more familiar with are uh, useful to some attempt, uh, to some extent only insofar as they allow us to uh, show what the EU is not, right? So the European Union, I think, ultimately is probably best understood as a phenomenon all on its own that shares some DNA perhaps with international organizations such as NATO or NAFTA or the UN, but really goes much further in terms of restricting national sovereignty and in terms of requiring countries to abandon their national laws in favor of uh, accepting rulings from Luxembourg, where the uh, European Court of Justice is located, or uh, accepting legislation from Brussels. It shares some DNA, perhaps, with the U.S. insofar as it has federalist tendencies. So although it started out as a uh, community of sovereign countries, increasingly that sovereignty has become restricted. What we still do not have is a fully functioning federal government or supranational government. There are elements that look like uh, supranationalism, such as the court's uh, rulings that uh, overwrite national law increasingly, including, by the way, uh, national constitutional law. And there are other elements that make the EU very different from a typical federal country such as the U.S. One of the biggest differences perhaps is that the EU has a very small budget. So a typical nation state has a government budget of 30 to 40 percent of gross domestic product, um, depending on what functions are allocated at what level of government, uh, whereas the EU just has a budget of around 1 percent of gross domestic product of all of Europe. So that gives you an idea of just how small it is. People like to make fun of the European Union as this ridiculous bureaucratic apparatus, and there are some good reasons for that when you look at the policies that actually come out of Brussels, some of which are really, really uh, ridiculous regulations on the curvature of the cucumber or on the nomenclature of jams and marmalades. But uh, at the same time, uh, in the grand scheme of things, compared to what uh, the EU is actually doing, uh, it doesn't actually spend a whole lot of money. So in that sense, it's very different from a nation state. It does not legislate on education policy for the most part. That is something that member states retain full authority over. It does not legislate on Social insurance. Uh, the only thing that it requires is that social insurance benefits must travel across borders if a worker travels across borders. So pension benefits must uh, be transferable from one member state to another. But uh, how a member state actually organizes pension benefits or unemployment benefits or health insurance really remains within the authority of the member state. Um, 
That also means, going back to the question of how the EU is actually handling the the crisis and how this affects uh, the common currency, uh, there is no real transfer mechanism that would allow uh, the EU to bring the weakest economies up to speed in the same way that the U.S. has transfer mechanisms at the federal level to uh, help Nevada catch up with the rest of the country uh, as the state that's undergoing the severest recession right now. So even though the EU does have a redistributive element, it is very, very small compared to national budgets. So I think it's useful to keep that in mind when we try to understand what the EU is actually doing. Most of the EU's output is regulatory rather than money. EU governance, I think, is can be very confusing. Uh, there's the European Parliament, uh, the Council of the European Union, the European Commission, the European Council. Where is, is this locus of power? Right. It's, again, perhaps helpful to think of it in terms of how we would think about a national government. So you've got your executive, you've got your uh, uh, legislature, and you have the uh, judicature. So uh, the court is relatively straightforward. You have the European Court of Justice and its affiliate courts, and they indeed uh, overwrite national law increasingly. So uh, that may not have been intended when the institutions were set up, but certainly the court has very much taken on a life of its own. The legislative chamber is a bit more complicated. So there is the European Parliament, which since 1979 has been directly elected. Uh, for a while, the way it was elected varied from country to country. So some countries had proportional representation, which brought smaller parties into the parliament. Others had a first-past-the-post system, like the U.S., the winner uh, in a district just gets the seat. And that was true for the U.K. And so you had very different party patterns from different countries, which uh, was deemed not really conducive to building a common European democratic discourse. So that changed in 1979. Um, Vote counting mechanism changed more recently. The other legislative chamber is the Council of Ministers, which is the upper house, if you will, and a way of national governments to be represented in different um, configurations depending on the subject matter. So you've got a Council of Ministers for Financial and Economic Affairs, which is probably the most powerful of the Council of Ministers. And there are others for environmental affairs, agricultural affairs, etc. And they meet with a different frequency. The standard argument about the council is that it uh, is far more powerful than a parliament. Uh, this is changing. So in recent rewritings of the treaty, which is something akin to a constitution of the European Union, the parliament has been given more power. So the co-decision procedure is a procedure whereby the parliament has some authority over uh, passing legislation along with the Council of Ministers. But what's tricky about the Council of Ministers is that it represents uh, member state governments. And so given that it remains the most powerful legislative chamber, uh, it uh, has the potential of imposing laws that may not uh, be liked by a substantial number of people in Europe. Against this argument speaks the fact that most decision-making in the council is actually by consensus. So even though uh, it is possible for them to make decisions with qualified majority. Um, that uh, formula that requires somewhere around 60 to 70 percent of the vote. Uh, de facto, most decision-making actually is consensual. And the reason for that is that 
you want to make sure that member states will actually implement the policies. And since the commission, the executive branch of the EU, doesn't have much in the way of enforcement power, its bureaucracy is relatively small compared to its regulatory output, uh, the enforcement is up to the member states. And so if you force policies down the throats of member states who don't, do not want them, they are most likely not to enforce them. The executive is the commission, the European Commission. A lot of Americans will probably have heard of the European Commission, which becomes visible in trade negotiations with the um, WTO. It becomes visible when it sues American companies such as Microsoft for anti-competitive practices. And it also makes decisions on antitrust issues such as it gives approval to mergers of giant multinational corporations. And so uh, it's something that affects American corporations as well. So uh, it's an interesting and probably the least easy to compare um, institution of the various EU institutions. It's an executive. It's not elected. It's appointed by the member states and jointly approved by the parliament. So the parliament cannot object to any one members of the commission. It has to vote down the entire commission. But for the most part, we're dealing with an institution that is not elected but appointed and that has the sole right to initiate legislation. So that really is very different from how most folks think about democracy, including myself. Didn't Europe in the last couple of years choose a president and a foreign minister? Yes. So this is one of the innovations of the uh, latest installment of treaty revisions, the Lisbon Treaty. Um, the impetus for that was that um, we have this very complex set of institutions. As Kissinger said, if I want to call the European Union, who do I call? So it's not really clear who its spokesperson was up until recently. Yes, the commission had its president. Uh, right now it is uh, uh, Barroso. But uh, it was never all that clear who he could actually actually speak uh, speak for. So um, now the uh, European Union has its own president, uh, Herman van Rompuy, and it also uh, has its foreign minister, uh, Catherine Ashton. And um, she is at the same time the vice president of the commission. So it now has something more akin to a public face, right? Uh, but at the same time, these are still positions that are not popularly elected, uh, but rather determined by the member states. So uh, in terms of democracy, uh, the European Union still has a long way to go. And attempts in the recent treaty um, re uh, negotiations, the result of which now is the Lisbon Treaty, uh, largely failed to really upgrade the quality of democracy uh, in the European Union. We can talk about that, the extent to which the parliament has become more powerful, the extent to which national parliaments actually now have more of a say early on when uh, policies get deliberated in Europe to get their input up front rather than uh, just when it comes to implementing uh, the policy nationally. But there's also a mechanism for citizens to uh, initiate policy through petition. So uh, with a million signature signatures from European citizens, voters can now propose legislation on certain issues. But that's a mechanism that has yet to be tried out. So it's very new still. But yes, the impetus was to give the European Union more of a face that others can actually recognize. The names that you mentioned, the president and foreign minister, are not exactly household names. Does this say something about the type of politician that gets involved in the EU? 
Possibly, yes. Uh, technocrats rather than uh, charismatic leaders, perhaps. <laughs> yes, I think yeah, to speak in uh, Weberian terms, absolutely. So often it is uncontroversial uh, technocrats who uh, don't necessarily have a large following uh, in their respective countries, but were serviceable uh, politicians. So usually they're politicians. They have had some sort of uh, previous career. It used to be the case that uh, sending somebody to the European Union or the European community for their political career was a, a way to retire them and get them out of the way. That's no longer the case. So uh, having a political career at the European level now is definitely considered a prestigious move. People abandon positions of, say, being a state um, prime minister in Germany in favor of uh, becoming a commissioner uh, in the European Union. That didn't used to be the case. So uh, that would have been perceived as a downgrade, a career. <laughs> One of the curious aspects of trying to develop a European identity is the Eurovision Song Contest. And for the next piece of music, we're going to hear from one of those competitions. Tell us a little bit about Eurovision. So Eurovision, yes. Eurovision has been around since 1956. It was created by the European Broadcasting Union, a union of national broadcasters, to basically create something like a common discourse, a common identity, uh, while at the same time facilitating cultural exchange or the exchange of audiovisual products, if you want to call it that. <laughs> it's a very technical term. And so in the beginning, they had very few takers uh, for the proposition. I think it was only six or seven countries that actually participated in the first round in 1956. Uh, but it has since become a major, major event across Europe. And the definition of Europe here is vast, uh, reaching from Iceland to Israel. Uh, and Azerbaijan. So this is not limited to the European Union proper. It has actually very little to do with the EU. It uh, now involves more than 40 countries that participate. It's held annually and watched by some 120 million Europeans. Uh, it's a big deal. Uh, last year, the winner was a German, um, not even a professional singer. Uh, I think uh, she may have just finished high school or uh, been early college, Lena. And Lena Meyer-Landrut is her full name with the song Satellite. And the quality of music that comes out of these uh, contests is often belittled. Uh, so there's a arguably a strong tradition of cultural snobbery in Europe. So uh, um, cultural commentators crinkle their noses at what comes out of these uh, Eurovision contests. Um, a few years back, the Finnish won with a heavy metal group called Lordi that uh, showed up in uh, monster costumes, uh, evoking Spinal Tap at its best. So it's amusing mostly for the kind of conversation it generates across Europe. The fact that it's the one thing that Europeans uh, seem to agree on in terms of what they want to watch. Uh, there is nothing really similar in terms of uh, there being a newspaper that everybody reads. Yes, the bureaucrats uh, all read the Financial Times and The Economist. So yes, uh, there is an English language newspaper that speaks to a large crowd, but ultimately we're talking about elites. At the level of mass culture, mass consumption, the Eurovision contest is the closest that we have to something generating a shared discourse. I went air 
other day. Love, you know I fight for you. I left on the port light for you. Whether you are sweet or cool, I'm going to love you either way. Love, oh love, I gotta tell you I feel about you. Cause I, oh I, can go a minute without your love. Like a satellite, I'm in orbit all the way around you. And I would fall out into the night. Can go a minute without your love. That was Satellite, sung by Lena, the winner of the 2010 Eurovision Song Contest. And that means, I guess, that Germany will be hosting this year's Eurovision Song Contest. How much is there a European identity? That's a good question. And part of the trick in answering this is how do we actually know that there is one, right? So one way of looking at this, and this is the way that political scientists usually approach it, is to ask how much do people actually know about the European Union? Um, And do they share certain fundamental values, such as the commitment to human rights, to democracy, to the free market? Um, Another way to approach this is by asking Do they talk about similar things in similar terms? So when there are big decisions to make at the European level, for instance, uh, a few years back, it was the conversation about the proposed European constitution, which failed and which became the Lisbon Treaty um, instead. The question one might want to ask is, are people, our newspapers, our voters, uh, the media, talking about the proposed treaty in similar terms? Do they ask similar things of this document? And do they also know what people in another member state are talking about? And um, do they have similar frames of reference? And I think that's actually a useful way of thinking about it, rather than simply assuming that everybody identifies with the European Union as their primary political identity, which I think is unrealistic even when we take it one level down to the national uh, level. So a lot of Europeans, yes, identify as citizens of a particular country, but they also have very strong regional or even municipal identities. So they are Berliners. They uh, are from Milano. uh, And uh, they may not necessarily even want to be associated with the citizens uh, of another part of their country. So if we understand that identities are layered and that people never just identify as citizen of a particular country, but also as a citizen of a region, then it, I think, makes more sense to uh, just think of the European Union or the European level as yet another layer. Uh, What we see is that um, identification with Europe as this supranational layer tends to be concentrated not necessarily among the beneficiaries of the handouts from Brussels, so it's not necessarily farmers, uh, but rather among technocratic elites. So people who benefit from the common market, more broadly speaking, who pursue job opportunities across borders. So in that sense, it's certainly driven by socioeconomic status. Uh, When we look at political knowledge, Things are a bit more complicated. So, in fact, farmers do actually know a fair amount about European Union policies because they've been getting checks from Brussels for a long time. So, again, there are different ways of thinking about it. I think probably the least useful way of looking for a European identity is by 
asking it to displace national or local identities. And again, we don't think about it that way when we think about national identities. You can both be from Indiana and an American. Uh, ditto for uh, Europeans. So I think uh, what we see is a slowly emerging European identity that's partly tied to the institutions of the EU, but also a lot of contestation. And that may be a good thing because that's how uh, states evolve as well. When I was teaching in Poland a year and a half ago, I had uh, a number of students in my class who were on the Erasmus program, uh, this kind of inter exchange, if you will, between universities throughout mm -hmm. Europe. Young people also tend to work abroad more. Is there likely to be growing support because young people are more involved in Europe or was I just seeing a limited uh, perspective? Oh, I think Erasmus has been growing uh pretty steadily all along. So uh, for any college student in Europe, uh, I think it's pretty much a given that they're going to be spending a semester in another member state, and it's a fantastic opportunity. At the same time, uh, that doesn't necessarily translate into people pursuing career opportunities in other member states in the long run. Uh, again, taking it back to the EU institutions, an indicator of there being a truly supranational uh, supranational professional class would be if the EU could truly draw upon all member states uh, for these kinds of uh, EU careers. And that's the idea. But in practice, the EU finds that it has trouble recruiting these uh, multilingual, uh, highly trained lawyers, social scientists, etc., from some of the older member states. So recently, the UK proposed that the requirement to speak multiple languages should be relaxed for uh, the British because they already speak English uh, and because it makes it hard for Britain to actually find enough people to staff its share of the uh, European Union institutions. I'm always surprised by how little labor mobility there actually is. So if I go back to the folks I graduated with from high school, not that I'm in much contact since I've been in the U.S. for the last 20 years or so, but most people stay within their own region. Uh, now, that may just be because it's a relatively wealthy region in my case. I grew up in the southwest of Germany. There is less labor mobility than one would expect, except sort of at the highly technocratic academic financial level. One other aspect that might be considered in looking at the growth of European identity is the mass media. Um, to what degree do... Uh, newspapers, uh, television, the internet cover what's happening in Brussels? Depends. Uh, I think there are national newspapers in all of the member states that cover a lot. And some of it depends on how open the country is to its ties to Europe. But if you look at the major member states, I think uh, all of them have uh, national newspapers that cover a lot. Uh, for an American looking for the one European newspaper to read in order to find out what's going on in Brussels, the Financial Times is probably your ticket, along with The Economist as a weekly uh, news magazine. You could also look at any major national newspaper in any of the other uh, member states. The Guardian actually covers a lot, again, if we're going to English language media. Um, so does the Times of London. Um, there are other media um, that cater more to a Eurosceptic crowd, shall we say. That may not necessarily have as much coverage, but for the most part, um, there's a lot of coverage pretty much uh, uh, in all of them. And they tend to separate it from... Uh, world affairs. So it really sits somewhere between national politics and world affairs. So they recognize that Europe is sort of uh, worth its own um, category, if you will. 
Where does the EU stand in domestic politics? The participation, for example, in elections to the European Parliament is always lower, I think, than for national parliaments. Correct. Uh, and again, that could sort of be taken as a reason to be depressed about Europeans' engagement with uh, the policies that they're uh, asked to process and implement in their own countries. On the other hand, it's still relatively high compared to most uh, European, uh, I'm sorry, to most uh, U.S. elections. So it's still uh, usually upward of 60 percent. So there's there are a variety of things going on. Yes, uh, it is true that the turnout for national parliamentary elections is always higher in pretty much all member states. Yeah, I think that's safe to say for all member states. It is also higher in the older member states than in the new member states. So there are various gaps going on. Furthermore, it has gone down um, since the 1970s. So rather than going up, and that's perhaps the um, biggest puzzle, uh, the EU processes more and more policies. Uh, national parliaments are getting devalued because of that. But Europeans are not reorienting themselves toward uh, the European Parliament. So that is definitely uh, worrisome. European voters, I think, do not necessarily attribute causation appropriately, shall we say. Uh, political scientists actually work on this question. To what extent do voters understand that currency policy is made in Brussels or uh, Frankfurt, uh, the seat of the European Central Bank, rather than in their own country? Or to what extent is employment policy uh, made nationally as opposed to in Brussels? So uh, the question is, how much do voters realize is being determined in Brussels? Um, a lot of voters also think that the parliament is still kind of a talking shop rather than a uh, fully functioning legislative chamber. And when we look at the voting uh, turnouts in the new member states, there may also be an element of frustration. So as they were preparing for joining the EU, there was a lot of conversation about European integration and a lot of sort of pleasant anticipation. The longer they had to wait and the more uh, requirements they had to process uh, and the fewer actual benefits they were uh, getting out of uh, accession, the more skeptical they became. And so uh, what we saw then was a decline in their participation rates um, as they joined or after joining. So I think there are various things going on. It's not good for democracy, for sure. Um, but again, if we're sort of using the U.S. as a baseline, it actually doesn't look all that bad. <laughs> you mentioned earlier in our conversation NATO. Um, what is the relationship between NATO and the EU? Complicated, very complicated. The EU from the get-go in its earliest days as the coal and steel community and then the European community, toyed with ideas of also becoming some form of military alliance. And the question always was, what would be its relationship to NATO? Um, and to what extent would member states actually be willing to contribute military capability to uh, that or to NATO for that matter? Uh, and who would be the principal voices. And so obviously with NATO being uh, dominated by the U.S., this European defense union, whatever its uh, name would have been, there actually was such a thing as the Western European Union, which was a defense alliance, would probably have been governed by or dominated by the French rather than uh, the U.S. and maybe that U.S.-British uh, alliance that we already spoke of. That never really went very far, and there are a variety of reasons for that. NATO being 
the predominant one. So NATO being a perfectly functioning uh, military alliance, it's not really clear why we need to duplicate that. There are also different traditions among EU member states in terms of joining military alliances or remaining neutral. Ireland as a neutral country. Sweden has a tradition of neutrality. Austria being another one. So it's not straightforward that all EU member states necessarily support policies of NATO. And it's not straightforward that all NATO members necessarily uh, support the policies of its dominant members, such as the US and the Iraq uh, war is perhaps the most prominent example that will be in uh, everybody's mind. Uh, Libya right now is an interesting case in that we're actually seeing the French, the British, and the U.S. Um, jointly working to enforce the no-fly zone. But here the interesting question is what is its relationship to NATO and how are the other EU member states actually uh, engaging with this particular uh, foreign policy problem? The Germans have been very reluctant, and a lot of people like to justify that by saying that Germany has this pacifist uh, tradition since World War II, I think things are a bit more complicated. Germans are definitely very reluctant to send soldiers abroad. The Germans have been involved with the Afghanistan war. Um, it, there's not broad voter support for any sort of uh, external uh, missions outside of NATO uh, in Germany. You saw that certainly uh, play out in the uh, Yugoslav wars. At the same time, um, to sort of put a damper on this perception that Germany is a uh, pacifistic country, Germany is the third largest weapons exporter in the world. So um, certainly there are a lot of German corporations that benefit from wars elsewhere. So I think that puts it a bit in perspective. That actually uh, raises another question on economic trade and so forth. Why should people in Indiana care about the EU? Good question. And... There are uh, very good reasons for people from Indiana to care about the EU, even though we are a landlocked state. And it doesn't seem obvious that uh, we're shipping a lot of goods to uh, the European Union. But it actually turns out that um, the European Union is the single most important investor, foreign investor in Indiana. So it uh, is responsible for um, upward of 65% uh, of foreign direct investment in Indiana that's higher than in some of the other uh, neighboring Midwestern states. So Indiana, more than Illinois, more than Wisconsin, uh, is dependent both on foreign direct investment from the EU as well as exports to the EU. And we can sort of disaggregate that by what are the, the main sectors here. Pharmaceuticals are obviously very important here. Machinery is another important sector, but also agriculture. So as a state with a pretty significant uh, agricultural sector, um, the EU actually really matters to Indiana. For the last bit of music, let's think something about trying to create a Europe at the same time there are processes of globalization. What, what kind of music might tell us something about that? There are... Hip-hop artists such as Kenny Arcana, a French hip-hop artist uh, with immigrant background, a uh, woman uh, whose parents, I think, immigrated from Argentina, uh, who increasingly produce sort of political rock music. Um, punk rock, I think, certainly did that a few decades back. But I thought it might be interesting to actually listen to uh, some of the more recent politicized hip-hop uh, output from Europe with uh, Kenny Arcana who comments on the global order, on the degradation of uh, the environment in 
the interest of markets and corporations who comments on the loss of human rights on uh, political refugees uh, who are uh, moving from country to country without uh, finding recognition for their rights uh, and who comments on globalization essentially being the cause of a lot of uh, political instability. And we have seen uh, in recent years, especially probably since the uh, 2008 recession and a surge again in popular mobilization and social movements against uh, globalization, against the market. Uh, going 10 years back, uh, we saw the Battle of Seattle uh, as sort of a major milestone in terms of transnational organizing against capitalism, against global markets, against the World Trade Organization. And there were similar um, transnational protests in Europe surrounding um, uh, G8 summits as well as European Union summits. And in Greece, as I've already mentioned, uh, since the imposition of severe austerity measures, uh, we've seen a huge upturn in terms of popular protest, including violent protest. So people actually destroying government buildings, destroying uh, corporate headquarters, etc. London, a few weeks ago, had one of its largest demonstrations against austerity measures since the protest against the Iraq war uh, some uh, nine, ten years ago. So we're seeing a lot of um, popular mobilization against um, capitalism, against free markets. And I think that's one way to actually tie it back into a more local way of thinking about politics, what was going on in Wisconsin and Indiana, for that matter. Protests against budget cuts and against restrictions on labor rights, I think, are something that we may be seeing a lot more of, and again, globally. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today for this conversation about the European Union has been Beata Sisinich, a member of the political science faculty at Indiana University. Beata, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. And we close with that music by Kenny Arcana, Ordre Mondial. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. Parce que même si ce système s'exprime de manière différente, ce sont les mêmes valeurs qui sont bafouées et c'est un même système qu'il y a derrière tout ça. On retrouve une philosophie qui est souvent la même, qui est celle de l'expansion, l'accumulation de richesses, le vol, toutes les exactions qui s'accompagnent de tout ça. Les multinationales, c'est eux qui gèrent le monde. Que vous le voulez, vous le voulez pas. Nos droits les plus fondamentaux, ils sont en train d'être bafoués. Ils ont créé une guerre économique. C'est un seul et même système. Je suis là, partout. J'ai resserré les murs, j'ai imposé ma surveillance. Caméra partout dans les rues, j'ai approfondi les frontières. Un rempart pour le tiers-monde, un champ de tir pour les enfants. Histoire que les affaires montent, je ne défends pas l'être humain. Je défends les capitaux, j'instaure les règles du commerce en faveur des occidentaux. Je suis l'art de payer en sans croire qu'on ne vole rien. Au service de la croissance et droits de l'homme, j'en rigole bien. Je me cache derrière des idéologies pour que l'opinion soit d'accord. J'ai imposé la biométrie sur vos passeports. J'ai fabriqué la peur pour que tout le monde soit sur écoute. The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. 
Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.